This morning's text is from 2 Corinthians 6.14 through 7.1. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them, and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from, from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be, your, be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Good morning, Grace. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Matt Adams. I'm on staff here, and it's my privilege to preach while Dave is on vacation. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's kind of a vacation. It's a mission trip, but he's going to preach in Tanzania and share the gospel and um, teach pastors in Tanzania. And on the side, he'll take a safari. And then next week, it's going to be Kyle. So pray for him, pray for safety, and pray for the pastors that are over there that they'll be able to receive him. American teaching is very different than African teaching. So pray that that translation is able to take place in a really good way. So it's been my pleasure to dive into this particular portion of Scripture for the past several weeks, searching for what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through Paul. Our text today is going to be specifically out of 7.1, this last section. But this verse is really a command based off the previous section that we just read. So in light of those five verses, here's what I believe Paul's message is in our text, all right? Believers in the fear of the Lord pursue perfect holiness by separating yourselves from the world because God has promised you wonderful things. Pray for me as I deliver this as I'm a little under the weather, so I'm praying that the <clears throat> any coughing does not hinder us this morning. So let's pray. Wonderful Father, glorious Son, precious Comforter, we come this morning to bless Your holy name. We enter Your courts with praise. You are high above all things. You are far better to us than we deserve, yet You continue to give us good gifts. We confess that we are weak and You are strong. We are sinful and You are holy. We are selfish, but you desire our ultimate good. Holy Spirit, would you please visit us now. Penetrate our hearts with your holy words. I pray that none of my words here would be what's taken home, but all of my words would evaporate into thin air. But your holy, pure, perfect word would fasten itself to our hearts and take control. 
humble us enough to see this difficult message as lovely. We can't do this on our own. We need your strength. So enable us now to receive these wonderful truths. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So before we dive into the meaning of this text and how it's going to affect us or how it should affect us, I want us to briefly get a glimpse of the kind of people Paul is dealing with here in Corinth. I might go a little quick just because I want to get to the main message. But So Paul had planted this church in Corinth several years prior to this letter. But now his opponents from the east have come, false teachers. They're corrupting this church's doctrine and they're slandering Paul. Most of the church has been converted, but there is still a remnant that were hostile to Paul and his teaching. So he decided to write another letter to correct their behavior and call them to repentance and also to affirm and celebrate the ones who are staying true to the Word of God. So here's what's going to be vital to understand for our sermon. Paul is writing to a people inside an extremely pagan culture. While the Corinthians seem to be very artsy in their tastes, trendy, they loved literature, art, rhetoric, philosophy. The city was actually a mecca of paganism and idol worship. The Corinthians were known far and wide for their immorality. In fact, they had coined a term for themselves to Corinthicize, to Corinthianize, which means to practice fornication. But its literal translation was to behave like a Corinthian. So to behave like a Corinthian is to practice fornication. Immorality is their identity. To be a Corinthian is to be immoral. They worshipped all the popular gods of the time, Apollo, Poisidon, Aphrodite, Athena. And Aphrodite's temple is rumored to have had a thousand consecrated prostitutes. Throughout the Corinthian letters, Paul describes the city in very colorful terms. Immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and robbers. He said in his first letter to the Corinthians, and such were some of you. These things characterize their old life. And this is the world that Paul is writing to. I don't think it sounds so far off from what we're living in. So let's go to our text, 2 Corinthians 7.1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now the first thing that I noticed is who Paul is talking to, the beloved. Believers. The truth being conveyed here is that Paul is writing to God's people who are loved by God, the beloved. In the New Testament, Paul exclusively uses this term beloved to refer to his disciples and God's elect people. That set-apart remnant that God has reserved for himself. So right from the start, in 6.14, we can immediately see that Paul is making a distinction with his whole message that there are two kingdoms. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of righteousness and lawlessness. Christ's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. I like thinking of two kingdoms. This is very helpful for me. It helps clarify our identity and to shape our worldview. 
It makes thinking about sin and justification easier. Once you've been regenerated or born again, you are placed into this new kingdom, God's kingdom. One kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness and holiness and purity, and the other, wickedness, deceitfulness, and immorality. The citizens in the kingdom of darkness can't do anything but sin because they're in Satan's camp. These are the enemies of God. Paul is telling the Corinthians that these two kingdoms are completely incompatible. They can't work together. They can't have unity or agreement. They have nothing in common. No one can be a member of both kingdoms. One is worshiping idols and the other is worshiping God. Paul is also assuming some things about these beloved believers. Things that wouldn't be true of an unbeliever. Things like, God only wants good things for His children. I mean, look at our exhortation. Look at the songs we're singing. The, the Holy Spirit has been orchestrating this morning, I tell you. Romans 8.28, a very familiar passage. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You must be called. Okay? We can't just say everything always works for good for everyone. No, it's for those who are called and who love God. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Right? Holiness. In order that He might be the firstborn among brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. See that? And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is Paul's message right here. This is how he thought. So when he was addressing the believers, he already knew that they had been called by God, that they were justified, that they were spiritually holy, spiritually pure before God, and they were being transformed into the image of God and soon to be glorified. The beloved are loved by this wonderful king. He desires only their good. So when Paul repeats God's command to come out of the world and to perfect our holiness, it's a good command. It might be hard, but it's good. Not to be looked on as boring or stifling or cramping our style. He's calling us to live and be who we already are and who we're being made into. Forgiven children of the King. The second thing, believers, in the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord. Paul is talking about an attitude or a state of being that we should be doing all of this in. Now, keep in mind that all of these points up there could be many sermons. So, I'm just going to be going through them and hitting the highlights. Remember the king of our kingdom? He's a loving father, right? But he's also at the same time holy and righteous and just. So, if you love kittens, then you must hate it when someone kills a kitten. If you love babies, you hate it when someone kills a baby, right? If you love something, you have to hate whatever is killing that. So if approximately, say, 42 million babies are killed per year, then God must be burning with wrath, waiting to be poured out on the kingdom that would commit such atrocities. Look at what Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 5. In this same letter, a little bit later in chapter 5, 
He says, so whether we at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him, right? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body. That is the temple of God, right? When they were out and they're walking around, all these temples are everywhere. There's fornication going on. There's all kinds of horrible things. And he's saying, whether good or evil, you're going to give an account before the judgment. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We plead with others who don't know the Lord. Proverbs 14.26 Whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for their children it will be a refuge. Fearing of the Lord is for believers. It's the people that love God. I love this kingdom language. There will be a secure fortress. See how God is both full of wrath yet mercy and love and grace. I wish Eric was here, but he's not. Uh, I can't help but picture Eric over in Iraq, you know. He was a sergeant in the Marines, and overseas he commanded a group of men. And those men had a great deal of respect and reverence for him. They knew that he was going to lead them correctly and protect them at all costs. He would jump on a grenade for them, literally. And on the other side, you have the enemy sitting in little rooms, you know, popping off shots at the Marines. And I just picture Eric, fully loaded in his uniform, his gear, his flak jacket, grenades, flashbangs, a huge rifle, you know, a team of guys behind him, busting in a door, get down, get down! I can't even imagine the fear that would come over you if that entered your door. And it's not a fear of their rank. They don't care about their title. It's a fear because they actually know who this person is. They actually know what could happen right now. That at this moment, Eric could literally rip them apart and send them into eternity. And that's how we're to fear the Lord. When we see Him correctly, we see Him as both a father and as a judge. Right? Fear the one who can send both body and soul to hell. Hebrews 12.28 Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, kingdom, 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 do you see this? Kingdom, kingdom. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So this is to be our state of mind continually. Not that we live in a trembling state of fear, wearing sackcloth and ashes and beating ourselves, but it's a constant awareness that guides our lives. It's a healthy, reverent fear like that of a stove or a bonfire or a marine. Those things can be used for good or they can burn you or they can kill you. And that awareness keeps us from acting foolishly. A healthy fear of the Lord is a state of reverence and awe. And that's how we're to be living our lives as believers. The third clause. Pursue perfect holiness. Believers, in the fear of the Lord, pursue perfect holiness. 
we're starting to get a little trickier now. It's easy to, to do the believer's part and the fear of the Lord part, especially when it's a theoretical thing, but pursuing perfect holiness gets a little bit harder. There are two areas now of which Paul is calling us to holiness. The body and the spirit. Paul is specifically referring to the things the Corinthians were doing with their bodies. And the spirit, I believe he is generalizing to use inner being, our thoughts, our desires, our passions. And the Corinthians were desiring the physical pleasures of the old life. They were also believing the false teachers that those false teachers were bringing in and were mixing them with their pagan beliefs and with Christian beliefs. So Paul uses both the words body and spirit, but I don't believe he's separating them. I believe he's just trying to cover all his bases. He's generalizing, saying anything you can think of, either internal or external that doesn't glorify God, cleanse it. Anything, body or spirit. And this is how Paul puts it to the Ephesians. I really love this. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And to the Corinthians, Paul takes it even further to say that we're supposed to do this perfectly. We are to perfect our holiness, bring it to completion. And there's no doubt he was thinking back to Leviticus 11.44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves. He's also thinking of Jesus. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And of course, First Peter, for it is written, be holy and I, because I am holy. Now, I'm no, I know Paul is not suggesting that we're going to be perfect in this lifetime because he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. And to the Romans, he laments his fleshly desires to do what he ultimately hates, and that is to sin. And yet... This same man is calling us to perfection. So knowing that we will be glorified and we are being made into the image of Christ, he means that we are to strive for perfection. We are to pursue perfection in these areas in order to bring holiness to completion in our entire being, being separate from the world. Believers, In the fear of the Lord, pursue perfect holiness by separating yourself from the world. How are we to pursue holiness? By separating yourself from the world. Because God has promised wonderful things for you. Interestingly enough, the main way Paul intends for us to cleanse ourselves is implied in this text and not directly written into it. Paul is telling us, to cleanse ourselves by separating ourselves from the world that is the world system, the philosophies, and mainly its influence. This is also the most controversial and challenging aspect of this passage because it's easy to talk about holiness when it's an abstract thought, but it's much harder to live it out in the real world with real people, your coworkers, your family members. 
your friends. Unfortunately, with the time I have today, it's just going to scratch the surface of this amazing principle. Let's look at the context again in 2 Corinthians 6.14, and then we'll go to the verse. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, Satan? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? These are rhetorical questions, meaning Paul is assuming that they already know the answers. And really, we do know the answers. Now let's look at our primary text in other translations to see if we can't get a clearer picture of what Paul is commanding. In the ESV, it says, Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. It's pretty vague. But if you look at other translations, they clarify a little bit. Let's purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body. Let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body and spirit. He's speaking of these things as outside of us. Contaminants. They are external things that defile us. Paul isn't only referring to the intrinsic fleshly lusts and desires of our nature because those are indwelling and there's no way for us to avoid them by separating ourselves from them. Our flesh is sinful and it's going to travel with us everywhere on earth until the end of time. No, Paul is talking about external influences and participation in unholy activities. He's talking specifically to this pagan culture, Corinthians that have come out of a very pagan culture. And Paul is pleading with them saying, separate yourself. Stop participating in your old ways. Stop believing those old sinful beliefs. Clark's commentary says it like this. Avoid everything in spirit and practice which is opposite to the doctrine of God and which has a tendency to pollute the soul. I hope you're already making application to this in your mind. Looking back up to those rhetorical questions, Paul asks the church, what partnership does the unbeliever have with the believer? First, I want to address two things Paul is not saying in these verses. Then we'll look at what he is saying. Number one, Paul is not saying that we are to divorce unbelieving spouses. Yes, As a believer, we do not willingly and knowingly enter into a spiritual covenant relationship with a member of the other kingdom because marriage is supposed to be an analogy of Christ loving the church. It's a spiritual relationship. But if we find ourselves in a covenant relationship with this unbeliever, we are not called to separate ourselves from them. Grace Church, remember this. Those of you who have unbelieving spouses have peace. Take comfort knowing that Paul also reminded those same Corinthian women who were married to unbelievers to stay with their husbands if their husbands were willing as a testimony to Christ and the gospel. They're your authority and Christ will bless you for your faithfulness to them. The second thing Paul isn't saying is that we should never go into the world or that we should ditch our friends or our secular jobs. After all, where would we find Jesus on a Saturday night? Sitting with the least of these, the despised, the rejects, the sinners. Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. 
But the difference is Jesus wasn't going into those temples and participating in idol worship. He wasn't kicking back a brewski, and so he was relevant. He was there to be the light in the darkness, to be the influencer, to bring the gospel to the perishing. So it is with wives and husbands and any other relationship with an unbeliever. We are called to be the influencer, to be the the witness. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that when you walk out that door today, you are entering into pagan territory. We are aliens. We're a holy priesthood. This is not our world and these are not our temples. The very real truth that the Corinthians were facing was that the Christians can't go back and worship in those temples. We don't sit under their teaching. We don't seek their ways of doing things. We don't love their humor. We don't fornicate with their prostitutes. And we certainly don't sneak up to their windows and watch it. Paul is telling believers here in 7.1 that we are to cleanse ourselves from outward sinful impurities, the things of this world. We're not supposed to be indulging ourselves in the world's pleasures, the world's worship of money and power and immorality. We're supposed to be set apart for those things of God and clearly distinct, a people consecrated to God. See, we have our own kingdom now. We have a new joy in our King. We worship Him only. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. And we are new creatures. We must be worshiping and living and learning and growing inside of that kingdom. Look back at what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his first letter, trying to encourage them in the same thing. This is a little long, so bear with me, but Scripture is more important than what I'm saying. So, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of us. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God, You were placed in that new kingdom. See, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body was not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with Him. Amen. This is the context in which Paul is writing. You can see the imagery that he's using. Now the principle is the same for us. We're being called to remove ourselves from those situations that were once a part of our old lives, to cleanse ourselves of all immorality. 
here's where the rubber meets the road. Think about this for a minute. We have a direct connection from anywhere in the world straight into the perfect privacy of our little house, our kingdom. We can access anything we want from that other camp at any time. You want the latest fix from the world's doctors? You want the latest gossip about the world's idols? You want the world's parenting tips? Do you want the most depraved images humanly possible? The list is endless and it all comes straight into our eyes and into our soul with the touch of a button. Secular media and the internet is the boiling water and we are the proverbial frog. We can't say it doesn't affect us because media is changing our entire culture and most Christians aren't even noticing. Barna says that only 19% of born-again Christians even have a Christian worldview anymore. And then you have to ask, are they born again? We need to start asking ourselves some serious questions. I'm not applying this to your life today. That's way too tricky for me. So instead, I'm just going to ask you questions and you can think about the answers. Not just about our viewing habits. That's just an example. I mean every area of our lives. What are we still taking a part in that is not morally in line with Christianity? What are we filling our spare time with? What parts of the world are we holding on to? What advice do we continually receive and seek from the world? What do we still find humorous? What do we enjoy watching that God utterly hates? What pagan beliefs are we mixing with our Christianity? Just like the Corinthians. I'm preaching to myself, just so you know. There is not a perfect person standing in front of you. Just outside those very doors is a world that is rampant with immorality and wickedness. And Paul is writing us, writing to us, the church. It gets harsh throughout the Bible, and we like to ignore these or make these passages just purely knowledge for ourselves and not actually apply them. Like 1 John 2.15, do not, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That has to have an application for your life. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. Some would quote Paul here when he said, it's not what goes in a person that defiles them. But Paul was not referring to enjoying immoral behavior when he said that. He was speaking about food offered to idols, and he was right, food doesn't defile us. He most certainly wasn't saying, ah, you can go to Aphrodite's temple, pull up a chair, enjoy the show, as long as you don't actively participate, because it's not what goes into a person that defiles them. That would be ridiculous. This may seem harsh, but I guarantee you Paul and Jesus have far greater standards for what we consume than you or I ever will. And then he continues, you know, the desire of the eyes and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, 
No, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What's the will of God? Stop worshiping idols inside the temple of God. Separate yourselves from sinful, wicked things that defile us. We are called to stop loving the world's stuff. So what's the motivation for all this? Because seriously, this becomes legalism really fast. And then it's just about, don't do this, don't watch that show, you know, don't download MP3s. What gives us the strength to separate ourselves from the world? What prevents us from being legalists? Because let me assure you, this is not legalism. He's not calling us here to legalism. Number five, believers in the fear of the Lord pursue perfect holiness by separating yourselves from the world because God has promised wonderful things for you. This is where it gets good. We separate ourselves because God loves us and He has promised us great and wonderful things. If we come out of the world and we be His people, we get those promises. I want to look at the promises beginning in verse 16. We're the temple of the living God. I mean, that right there can blow your mind. Anybody that lived in the Old Covenant could not even imagine Paul saying that we are now the temple of the living God. We are now made holy and God can dwell in us. He goes on to say, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will welcome you. Hmm? I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. That's where I was just loving the exhortation because it's right there all throughout Scripture. What amazing promises. We will be the temple of God. God will dwell in us. God will dwell among us and we will worship Him. He'll be our God and we'll be His people. He will be our Father and we His children. Though we're living in the kingdom of darkness, we were living in the kingdom of darkness, we were enemies of God. Everyone in this kingdom is an enemy of God. Just by living in this kingdom, you're an enemy of God. There's people in there, living in there. They have no idea. They don't know. They don't know this other kingdom exists. That's why, remember, in the fear of the Lord, we plead with them. Because there's two kingdoms. And yet, the Creator of the universe is promising to adopt an orphan. Not just any orphan, but the worst kind of orphan. The kind that hates you. He fights against you, bites you, cusses you out. He hates you. He's the worst of the worst. And that was us. We're no different than the Corinthians. We were utterly depraved. Paul said in Romans that no one is good. Paul said that while we were still enemies of God, Christ reconciled us to God so that we could become sons and daughters of God. And this was God's plan from eternity, to have a people set apart, wholly consecrated unto Him, to glorify Him 
and worship Him eternally. And that's exciting. When you start thinking about this, it gets really exciting. Ephesians 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How is that for a promise? Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Adopting us was His plan all along. This is not a reaction to the fall. It's not a reaction to sin. God is not surprised by anything. He chose us, the beloved, before the earth was even created. For what? That we should be holy and blameless before Him. See, we're a called out people. We're called out from that world and we're made holy just because He loves us. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Because of His great love, He adopted us before we knew Him. When we were enemies, it was nothing that you did. You weren't good enough. You didn't have enough faith. God didn't select you based on your faith. No, before the world existed, He predestined you for adoption. Beloved, that is no small thing. Don't miss this. He is promising to be your heavenly Father. You are like, it's not a phrase, child of God. You are literally a child of God. You are a child of the King. And I love John's reaction in 1 John to the knowledge of this. And this should be our, rege- our reaction. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. It's beyond our imagination. If we truly believe these things, why would we ever even want that old kingdom? These promises are the motivation for separating ourselves from the world. They give us strength and hope that our striving is not in vain. And God promises to complete our holiness because He knows we're weak and insufficient, but He is strong and He is able. And in the end, He'll get all the glory. So there it is. It's my conclusion. You can see what Paul is getting at in seven one. He's wrapping up those previous verses with his all those rhetorical questions and then giving us a command. So what do we do in light of all these truths? We cleanse ourselves, pursuing holiness by separating from the things that defile us. Again, he's not saying to cut yourself off from all the people in the world. You know, Jesus was a friend of sinners. We're to be friends of sinners. We're to love those people. But we are to cut ourselves off from their influence. When it comes to interacting rightly with the world, we are to be fishers of men, not participants in their kingdom. We don't enjoy and participate in their idol worship, in their worldly philosophy, in their violence and wickedness, in their desires and passions, because those things have no place in the new kingdom of light. 
I want to read a passage from Ephesians that Grant read in Sunday school because it rounds this off. This is the gospel. In Him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. I'm in Ephesians 1, verse 11 through 14, if you want to write it down. In Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. See that? We've been predestined so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So if you're an unbeliever this morning, what does this mean for you? It means give your life to the King. Repent. Turn from your sins. Trust in that King. Beg for mercy. If you're a believer, separate yourself from the world. Consecrate yourself to God and pursue holiness. And here is your challenge this week. It's going to be hard, but I think you can do it. Ask this question about everything you do. Can I honestly pray that God would be glorified and honored in whatever it is I'm about to take part in? Can I honestly pray that God would be glorified and honored? He would be pleased and rejoice and sing over me in whatever it is I'm about to take part in. That is our greatest challenge. But it is also our greatest joy. Remember, nothing that this world has to offer is worth holding on to compared to the promises we have in Christ. One last time. Believers, in the fear of the Lord, pursue perfect holiness by separating yourselves from the world because God has promised wonderful things for you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have opened up our eyes that we are now children of the King. You have taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and You have brought us into the kingdom of light. We rejoice. God, I pray that we would remember that, that we would live in that, that Your promises would be our motivation for holy living. That we wouldn't go back to our old ways. We wouldn't wallow in our old filth. We wouldn't enjoy and love and desire the things of the world. We wouldn't laugh at their jokes. We wouldn't indulge and enjoy participating in the things that they love that are immoral and against Your kingdom, God. I pray that You would give us the strength with Your Holy Spirit to consecrate ourselves, to separate ourselves, to remove ourselves out from under the world's influence and live 
as children of the King. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus, dying on the cross to make this possible. Paying the price that we could not pay while we were still enemies of the cross. You reached down and adopted us, kicking and screaming the whole way. Thank you, God. In your holy name we pray. Amen.